I'm building this company so it lasts forever. I'm not building this company so that I lead it forever. Hey, Bomb Squad. Welcome to Radio Cherry Bomb, the show that's all about women and food. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. Today's guest is an entrepreneur I admire greatly, Sana Javeri Kadri, the founder and CEO of Diaspora Co. Diaspora is a spice company with a devoted following, and the big spice companies are paying a lot of attention to what this disruptive brand is doing. Sana puts a great deal of care into everything, from sourcing to shipping, and she is changing the industry in the process with her beautiful turmeric, nutmeg, chilies, cacao, cardamom, saffron, and more. Stay tuned to hear the story of Diaspora and its very impressive founder. Today's show is sponsored by another company that cares a great deal about sourcing. It's Sitka Salmon Shares. Say that three times fast. If you listen to Radio Cherry Bomb, you know what a CSA is. This is a CSF, a community-supported fishery. The Sitka Salmon Shares fish are wild-caught in Alaska and the North Pacific by Sitka's fishermen and fisherwomen owners and their trusted partners. The fish are harvested in season, traceable to the source, blast-frozen, and delivered to your door. I wanted to see what Sitka Salmon Shares is all about and support what they're doing, so I bought myself a premium share, which is $129 per month for nine months, April to November. They do have other options, just FYI. What's coming my way? Maybe king salmon, albacore tuna, halibut, and sablefish, all sustainably caught by Sitka's small boat fishermen. Sitka Salmon Shares has a special offer for listeners of Radio Cherry Bomb. Just visit sitkasalmonshares.com backslash cherry for $25 off the first month of a premium Sitka seafood share. The Sitka folks say it's the best tasting seafood you'll ever have. Guaranteed. That's sitkasalmonshares.com backslash cherry. And now for a little housekeeping, we are announcing the new issue of Cherry Bomb this week. Issue 16, Sweet 16. Julia Child is our cover star and the issue is all about Julia. Newsletter subscribers will get the first peek at the issue. If you'd like to pre-order or subscribe, head over to cherrybomb.com. And now for my interview with Sana. First off, I just wanted to say thank you uh, in advance for your time because you just got back from this incredible sourcing trip that I probably have a million questions to ask you about. So, um, so thank you for doing the show, even though you're probably jet lagged and all of the above. I'm very excited and, and you know, the sourcing trip was definitely like the trip of a lifetime oh. and one of my favorite trips that I've ever had, even though I've been doing this for five years now. Up until a month ago, we only sourced from India. Um, my whole thought behind it is that that's where I'm from. That's where I have deep roots. And it's also where, because we run an export company in India, we're able to have maximum impact. There's a lot of amazing companies that source globally. We just find that, you know, being very regionally specific works for us and like allows us to build connections deeply. But then as of last month, we're also working with Sri Lanka, which is really exciting that it's like one little expansion, you know, across the water. I'm in a culture that that's similar and very different. So I'm very excited. And I, I visited 10 states in the past two and a half months. 
And India is so vast that it, it really felt like I visited so many different countries because like Manipur, which is on all the way on the east, is on the Burmese border. Kashmir borders China and Pakistan. Amazing. Well, watching along on Instagram was just a, such a delight and such a treat. So thank you for sharing all those photos. Yeah. I'm guessing this had been planned for a long time. If you're going to leave the country for two and a half months. It's actually annual. So I'm in India for four months of the year, four oh, or five months of the year every that. year. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's pretty normal for me. So I'm always there January until March because that's harvest season for a lot of spices. And then there's a second harvest season that's in September through October. Okay. So I try to be there for both of those, which means that I also miss most of the cold here, which I love. So I just like summer hop essentially. <laughs> And India has a has our summer from April until June, and then a monsoon from June to September. Okay. So most things don't get harvested during that time. They're kind of just surviving. Got it. The model, you know, I literally built this business because I wanted to spend time at home in India and spend time here. It was like trying to come up with the perfect schedule. And luckily, Spice Harvest aligned beautifully with my dreams. I would love to start with just what is Diaspora Co.? Yeah. So Diaspora Co. is a single origin spice company, which means that we source from either one farm or one area per spice, which means that we have like total transparency and accountability of who grows it, how it grew, when it got here. Um, and then we source from small family farms that are growing sustainably. And I say sustainable instead of organic because Often the organic certification is expensive. It's a very Western need, whereas sustainable means regenerative, means pesticide-free, chemical-free. It's a, it's a broader definition that's more rooted in care for the land and for people and you know for nutrition. Um, so we work with sustainable small farms. And then our mission was really about like how do we bring equity to a system that has been horrible for hundreds of years. I mean, actually, you could say thousands of years. And for us, that means that we, the farmer sets the price and like the farmer decides how much they want for their product. And then we build our margins and our, you know, our pricing from there. So it's farmer led hundred percent. And in terms of beyond that, I think there's a cultural piece to diaspora, which is about being for us by us. I felt that as a woman from India, I'm third generation Mumbaikar, I didn't see myself, my culture, like the beautiful regional nuances of Indian culture represented in the spice trade because it's always been a very colonial industry and it's always told through the white lens. So telling stories from specifically our point of view and marketing it from this like deeply cultural point of view was, was the exciting part of the whole thing. Now, what were you doing before you started Diaspora? I was a baby, um, but I was doing some things. <laughs> um, I, I know we should point out, I usually don't ask people how old they are, but we should point out how young you are to have built such a remarkable company. Do you mind telling us how old you are? <laughs> I'm now 27, so I don't feel as, as young anymore, but I started the company when I was 23. And at 23, I mean, I lied about my age all the time. I told, I mean, I told farm partners that I had a husband, I pretended to be 30 because I looked like I was 12, you know, so nobody took me seriously. But I, I'm also very grateful that I started the company so young because I was able to live on very little for very long. If you don't have funding as a founder, especially as a BIPOC founder, it's really hard for a really long time. So at 27 to have come into a little bit more cushiness is, is a nice feeling. 
You started with turmeric. Why did you start with that? I did always know that I wanted to have more spices, but I didn't have any money to my name. So it was like, well, start with one and take it from there. And also, will this even pay off? In 2016, I was working at Byright, which is a wonderful grocery store here in the Bay Area, on the marketing team. And I noticed that turmeric lattes were getting really popular. And I remember walking to Samovar Tea House, which is in the Mission on Valencia Street, and trying their turmeric latte and just being like, oh gosh, this is terrible. And, and wondering like, where is this growing? Like if it's all coming from India, who is growing it? Are they making money off of this trend? And it was really that curiosity of like, I enjoyed uncovering and understanding supply chains. And this supply chain, the more I dug, the more opaque it seemed, the less answers I got. Like I was asking chefs, I was asking spice businesses, I was asking everybody, like, where are you getting this from? Who is growing it? Um, I think I even emailed the Goop team like multiple times and they completely ignored me and eventually realized that, you know, this could be an interesting area to research. And I pitched it to my parents and I said, you know, I want to quit my job and I want to come back home. I was also quite miserable living by myself and not a job I didn't love. So I pitched to them saying, I want to come back. I pitched it to a news outlet. I'll do a photo story about like who is growing the turmeric for your turmeric lattes. And my dad was so scathing where he was like, you'll get bored in two minutes. And I, I love to joke with him now that, you know, it's been five years and I'm not bored, dad. So I, I set off on this kind of on a whim. I had 3K for my 2016 tax refund, which was really large for me because the year that you work half full-time half the year and graduate and were a full-time student half the year, you get your biggest refund. So I had this like little wad of cash to my name and I went back so people, to Mumbai. So let's just repeat that. So people, yeah, I just want you to repeat that. So $3,000 was the seed money for diaspora. Yes. And then, and that's what I used for 20, February, 2017 until August, 2017, which was like travel money, create like setting up um, account. Like I had to set up an export company in India, which was sheer madness. So a lot of that paperwork came out of that money. And then when I had to buy, I finally found this wonderful turmeric farmer. I connected with the Indian Institute of Spices Research. Um, the scientists there proved really, really helpful to me. They, I, I also joke that they like tricked me into starting this business because they were like, you know, here's the farmer. We're the researchers. We just need the market. Like, you know, are you going to do this for your country? And I was like, yes, I'll do it for my country. And like, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But by the time I connected with Prabhu, he had 350 kilograms, which was about 700 pounds for me to buy. And he said, I'm only going to sell it to you if you buy it all. So I did take an 8K loan from my dad to buy that. But then I had to find a way to like get it here and pack it. And luckily I had just started dating this girl who'd worked in like high-end furniture moving for a long time. So she was really good at packing boxes and she became, and she's now my partner. And like She became the person who would like put things into jars for me. And I think we, we launched for pre-order September, 2017, sold out. I, I thought it was ours, but we actually sold out within four days which was amazing when I had like 300 followers on Instagram and everybody just wanted to support this idea and I like bought huge amounts of turmeric from me to help. I think I still have friends who have like 2017 bags of turmeric that just bought it to support me. <laughs> but you had a lot to figure out. You, it wasn't just the sourcing, the packaging, the shipping, the, the website, the marketing, all of that. Yes. And if you, if I look back to the first Squarespace website, like it was so janky and so homespun. So the fact that people purchased and like supported and were so excited about it 
when we had so little to show for ourselves is really amazing to me. And I, at the time, 2017, when I came back to the U.S., I was working at Cosecha, which is an amazing local Mexican restaurant twice a week. And then I was also photographing freelance. And then I was doing this on the side because I didn't have the ability to do this full time. So I, I was kind of hustling all the things for about a year and a half, almost two years before I was able to say, okay, this will pay my rent. I'll be okay. And, and we added spices very slowly too, because I wanted to source very thoughtfully only source when we had a fantastic farm partner. Like we started so strong with the turmeric that I didn't want to add a bunch of stuff, you know, that wasn't at the same quality level. So it was a slow crawl and now we're moving much faster. When, when did you really start to hire people to help? Oh, You're like, I, I still, still have it. <laughs> okay. So March last year, when the pandemic hit, we were three people two of, I was the only full-time person, the other two were part-time. As of today, we're eight people, six of which are full-time. So this year has been a really big year for us. A lot changed during the pandemic and I really thought the business was gonna pack up. I had like three months rent set aside and was like, that's it, we're gonna be done now. Like, see you after the pandemic, but we grew 5X last year. So yeah, I was, thank you to the Asper community. Wow, what do you attribute that to? The growth? I think one part of it is that we were never, uh, our market was never really restaurants or wholesale. Like we were always direct to consumer. I started the company because as a good home cook, I wanted access to flavors of home and kind of fresher flavors. And so we, we had everything set up to be a direct to consumer company, mm-hmm. except the budget for Instagram ads. <laughs> I think when the pandemic hit, we kind of looked around and was like, oh, that's us. Like we're the ones who can ship you spices really quickly into your doorstep. And, you know, we have all the relationships set up. I've always sent out these like long, rambly, thoughtful newsletters during the pandemic. People were really into them. Your newsletters are fantastic. So we should give a little plug Thank to you. the newsletters. And if folks haven't uh-huh. signed up for it, you, it, it's one of the best brand newsletters out there. Thank you. I really try with them. I really feel like I hate my inbox being cluttered and full of, you know, random branded stuff. So why would I do that as a brand to anybody else? Yeah, I think one was just being prepped as a D2C brand at a time when things moved online so quickly. And then the other one was people cooking at home and realizing that their spices were terrible and they didn't taste like anything and wanting a better option and realizing that for $12, they could significantly upgrade their cooking. Now, I want to go back to the start a little bit. So it wasn't just that as a home cook, you wanted better spices. You thought there could be better turmeric sourcing. You set out to decolonize the spice industry, which is a massive (laughs) <laughs> massive goal. I mean, I'm I I don't know as much about the spice business as you do, but I would imagine it is controlled by a handful of companies. Yeah. And you decided to bite off this huge goal. I think it's called being 23 and not knowing any better. <laughs> what I would love if you could just walk us through like what is the spice industry today and who controls it and you know, what does it even mean to decolonize your spice cabinet? Yeah. Um, firstly, you know, I started with this word of decolonize because I was like fresh off of my liberal arts education was like, oh, decolonization. Um, what a big fun word. And I think now as we've grown as a company, I realized that 
especially in the American context, like decolonization stands for land reparations in the US, like to um, indigenous people. So we definitely walked away from using the term decolonization because we don't want to co-opt a term that we're using metaphorically, not literally. So I think we now say that we're dedicated to building a better spice trade, but to give some context about what the colonial origins of the spice trade are, what the industry looks like today. Today, the industry is controlled by about four or five brands. That's it. Like the globe, I'm not talking about America, I'm talking about the global spice trade. And that's because these, these are legacy brands that were set up, you know, 100, 150 years ago. So colonialism might have ended and then it trickled straight into big, big capitalism. I've, I've noticed that the big spice companies are talking a lot more about their sourcing. And I have to think that they are watching everything you do and reacting. Even though, yeah. you know, not to take away from what you have built, but you know, you represent a small fraction of of this industry, the spice Absolutely. industry. But but they're clearly watching what you do. Have you? Do you feel that? Have you noticed that? We see them placing orders, so we know that they're watching. <laughs> Wait, I didn't even mean, I didn't even mean that. I meant like in how they're doing their marketing and videos and. All of that, but they're placing orders. Wow. Just that, you know, they're placing orders so that they can see our product, taste our product, look at our marketing materials. We see orders from all the big five all the time. And I'm like, do you think we don't see this? Like you're literally using your company email address. They want to know what we're up to. And I mean, I think that they, they will have to get smart to, to the way the consumers will start demanding better. But my understanding of the spice trade in India, at least, is that these companies are so used to working with like large export companies, large traders, large quote unquote cooperatives that are not actually very fair trade and how they work. That to do the kind of small scale sourcing that we do and really, you know, look for flavor on the ground, like that's, it takes a lot. Like it takes me being there for half the year to do that level of sourcing. They can co-opt all the words that they want, but I'd be surprised if they could, you know, parallel our flavor. So you just got back from an incredible two and a half month trip. Can you tell us about it? I, I live in Mumbai. That's where my family is. And that's kind of my base. I live in our tiny two bedroom with my parents for two and a half months when I'm at home, which is always wonderful and a little bit special, um, where you suddenly revert to being an eight-year-old. And then I, I zigzag all over from there. But I started in the West, which uh, is closer to Mumbai. So I started with cumin and coriander in Rajasthan and Gujarat. And I, my family and my ancestors are from Gujarat. So that's, it's always nice to start with your roots and start in a place where, you know, you speak the language. In so many of these places, I don't speak the same language. And we either work with translators or sourcing partners or a lot of Google Translate and hand gestures. It's, it's a mix of things. And then the most special trip that I made, I think there was two really special ones. One was Kashmir, where we, we went up and visited our Saffron partners. I have so much pride for being Indian and from, for sourcing from India, but the same way that we talk about the colonizers and, and what colonialism, the effect that it had on India, I think it's been a learning for me that in any nation building exercise, like in the exercise of building India, we have been colonizers or occupiers off our like people and states and regions as well. And so as a quote unquote proud Indian, how do you navigate that? Like how do you 
honor people's desire for sovereignty, for you know their rights to be acknowledged, which is the case in Kashmir, where Kashmir truly wants to be free. I mean, it was it was a real learning experience of I'm so proud of the work that we do and the people that we work with, but that doesn't mean that like my patriotism is blind um, and doesn't acknowledge um, the areas that we source from that are really complicated and you know where the Indian government has actually inflicted great violence on these areas. Wait, you were there during the farmer's strike, weren't you? Yes, and like that was another very complicated element because our farm partners we stand in, and I will be very clear in that we stand in complete solidarity with the farmers' protest. Like, I believe that like pharma is determining their future is is the only way, um, and having a say on on policy like that. But our farm partners are already so privileged because they directly work with me as a corporation, who in a very lucky way that we're allowing them to set the price, we're honoring the price that they want. The farm protest and the farm bill do not affect our farm partners because we work with you know a, a very specific niche subset of farmers like i the comparison i would give is that we work with like the fish kill farms and the front porch farms on the two coasts of the us whereas the farmer protests are largely like the idaho and the ohio and the grain bowl farmers protesting on a much large scale for grain and large ag but yeah it was it was very complicated to navigate how the Indian government had also like pitted farmers against each other, where our farm partners, I often had to get into difficult conversations with them it would be the way they would say, you know, but we're able to be self-sufficient. Why can't they, um, you know, why can't those grain farmers in Punjab? And I had to say that this is a literally the government pitting you guys against each other instead of you standing in solidarity with them. So it, it was, it's a very complicated, we could talk about that for two more hours. You mentioned earlier, I can't remember whether we were recording yet or not, but that sometimes you had to pretend you had a husband. Now you <laughs> you are queer, you are a woman of color, you, you know, from the Bay Area, you don't yeah. hide who you are. So I would imagine that is a challenge for you. I do. So I do. Um, I, when I'm here, I don't. And on Instagram, I don't. Um, but even on Instagram, that's become really tricky. Like I do, I've had to move a lot of my like, openly queer content or like my more gushy queer content to my close friends on 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 stories rather than in my posts like recently I knew that a farm partner's son was like going through my Instagram post because I could like see him liking stuff and I was like in a race to beat him to archive things that I didn't want him to see and that's not because I'm hiding it's just because it's a it's a cultural thing that like wouldn't make sense and like I'm not my job is hard enough in a lot of ways as a, as a woman, as a young woman, like I'm not trying to suddenly be like woke and queer to them and expect them to understand that. This trip especially, I think that did start to wear on me is that in some ways I'm so lucky that, and I don't, maybe it's, I don't know if lucky or not, but like I'm straight passing, you know, I, I identify as femme and I can pass as a straight woman anywhere I go. And that means that I can easily conceal my identity and mask, but that's, that's exhausting at some point, you know, to pretend you have a husband, to pretend that you are going to get married to a man at some point and have a traditional Indian wedding, like all of these stereotypes of like, 
what my farm partners are just like making small talk with me. You know, they're just trying to connect with me in some way and not understanding that like there's no connection around those things and I'm having to lie or fake it or divert the subject. Whereas in the Northeast, so in Mekalaya and Manipur, which are places that I had visited before and like developed farm relationships, but I hadn't sourced from, it was really incredible this time to be able to be honest with our farm partners about who I am and who my partner is and like my life because the Northeast is honestly just a much more progressive part of the country. Well, I think just being honest about it is is amazing. And uh, again, I just marvel at how much you carry on your shoulders and just how... Thank you. And just being so honest about it. I have so much admiration for you and how you have built this and how you continue to build this. Um, tell us a little bit more about the trip, though, because it hopefully, like I said, people followed along on Instagram. It was so beautiful. Um, can you tell us some of the things you sourced while you were there that we'll be seeing in the weeks and months ahead? Yeah. So in Kashmir, obviously we ordered, we, we'd actually bought, before I visited, we had bought a year's supply of saffron that we then sold out of in six weeks. Part of my trip was saying, we need more. How do I find more? And, you know, going with Rakib to say, if I need 10x what we first bought, how are we going to do this? Like, through him, we were able to connect with a Kashmiri chili farmer that we have some a small lot of really red, like deep, rich Kashmiri chili launching soon um, in a couple of months. And then we, the other end was when I went to Meghalaya, we sourced um, a heirloom ginger powder that's going to be called Makir ginger. So exciting. It must be so, so satisfying as an entrepreneur to know that every time you launch a new product, your audience is so excited and thrilled. It is. It feels really sweet that we have this like dedicated community who, you know, cheers for us so hardcore. I mean, I've talked about this all the time that the first three years of the business were horrible. <laughs> like, yes, there were these big wins, but they were so hard. Um, my mental health really suffered. And I think the only reason we pulled through these past three years is because that community of people that cheer for us that send us nice notes that um, buy everything we offer um, has only grown and grown and grown and there's people who believe in what we're doing even at times when we're like do we believe in what we're doing so yeah that's that's been a real gift and I think that's also why I always want to put so much care into our newsletter is it feels like a way to connect with and really thank our community for all that they do for us as a sister entrepreneur, we definitely don't talk enough about the, um, the mental health, uh, <laughs> the mental health yeah. issues that come up when you're an entrepreneur. Um, and it's, it's hard. People just don't realize. Yeah. I don't know if these folks understand that they're what get us through these awful patches. You know, I was wondering as I, I was putting these questions together and looking at just all the different parts of your company that I think you do a, an amazing job from the packaging to the shipping to so many things. Do you have, do you have mentors? Do you have an advisory board? How do you make these decisions? I don't have an advisory board, but I'm working on it. If you have people that you think should be on our advisory board, I am all ears after this. But I do have, um, so Will Rosenzweig, who was, he was the founder of Republic of Tea, and he now co-teaches edible education with Alice Waters. He's my business coach, and he has been for about a year now. I'm paying him like a token of thanks for the support and the mentorship. I'm sure his experience and everything he offers costs way more than I pay him. 
I find that as an entrepreneur, there's so many things that are scary, that are overwhelming, that like we can often get like into blinders about. And a business coach's job in my experience and having interviewed a few is really about like opening up those channels for you and like helping you learn how to solve problems that you may not know how to solve or like to develop the mindset towards solving those problems. Or similarly, like Jenga Fly by Jing, like Trinity of Gold. Um, she and I actually had a working relationship and that we used to source from them. And then we, they, we don't source for them anymore. Like they just grew too big and we grew in a different direction, but we still definitely email back and forth being like, you know, how are you dealing with this? Can you help? So having those, I think having this group of like women founders, usually women of color founders, where we all help each other with the nitty gritty stuff that nobody tells you about, like liability insurance or right. fulfillment companies. We wanted to call you so badly in December about packaging because I had ordered <laughs> some of your products and they came so beautifully packaged. And I, you probably don't know this about me, but I can't stand like a lot of pack like excess package packaging things that aren't yeah. recyclable and i was like oh my god everything is recyclable it's so beautifully packaged nothing was broken you name it and not only that but december was just such a nightmare for anybody shipping and i was like oh gosh maybe we should just call <laughs> but i was like she's probably so busy right now and losing her mind i'm glad you didn't call me in december because that was a dark time like we we sent out ten thousand orders in you know three weeks and we were just like our fulfillment company actually like said no to us and said, we cannot deal with your demand. So me and my entire team moved into their warehouse and did it ourselves. So every order that was sent out in December was like me, my partner, my best friends, my, my partner's rugby team. It was everybody we knew that we were training like in a day to pack orders for us. So I'm so glad you didn't email me, but I'd love to help you now. <laughs> what is your ultimate goal with diaspora do you have will you ever sell this company how long would you like to keep building it on your own it's a it's a conversation I've been having with mentors with with everybody really for the past year now because you know I've been doing this for almost four years um and I'm slowing down a little bit in my energy um and and also you know I have other interests and other things that I want to do and other dreams I think I, I'm building this company so it lasts forever I'm not building this company so that I lead it forever. My, my intent is that we can build the impact and our relationships and our supply chain with our farm partners so that they last forever. And that as long as our farm partners want us as their market, as our access to market, we will be there and we will, you know, go above and beyond to do everything for them, which like over the past two years has been rolling out healthcare for not just our farmers, but also our farm workers, like the, the daily wage laborers that work on the farms. So like, I'm my dedication is to building a system that works deeply for them. But I know that I will not be the right person to lead this two or three years from now, you know, as it grows. Have you raised outside capital? We haven't. No, we haven't raised a single dollar. Um, that first 11K has just been recycled with cash flow to be now several million. So it's it's really, really just recycle, 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 um, which, which means that cash flow is really, really hard for us. And like, you know, when people ask us to make these big payments up front, like especially with harvest season, we pay all of our farm partners 50% advances, which means that between right now, like between January until April, we owe our farm partners in advances, not in harvest money over $1.5 million, which is just terrifying. 
So it means that we're having to get very creative. And last year, what helped us was opening up for pre-order. Um, and I think we're going to do that again this year is that, you know, if our customers and our community can help us with pre-orders in March, just to get us until May, they can help us stay an independent company as long as possible. I think we, we at some point will raise money like that's never off the table. But my thinking around that has always been that like, I want to build the model and like the perfect model first, which is like rooted in equity, which doesn't have to worry about margins and revenue and like targets and investors and all that. Like first I want to build the model that works for these farm partners, like builds the company we want, then we'll take on money. And we just have a long way to go as yet, but I, I don't feel that it's, it's the time as yet. Okay. I have a million more questions for you, but I would love to do a speed round with you and then let you go because uh, you've right. only been back in this country for what, barely 48 hours? About that, yeah. And you got vaccinated. Are we allowed to say that publicly? Yeah, yeah, I got I'm thrilled. Congratulations. I'm super happy you were able to do that. Thank you. Okay, speed round. Uh, I don't know if you've gone grocery shopping since you came back, but what was your last pantry purchase? Nothing. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. That's easy. When I'm in India, I like the the weeks leading up to coming here, I, I stock up. So I ordered six jars of boon sauce because it's so good. Wait, tell me what that is. Boon sauce is, so I love all chili crisp equally. I'm, I'm an equal opportunist when it comes to chili crisp, but boon sauce is a um, more like fennel forward chili crisp that's based out of LA. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. Yum. Fennel forward one. Okay. I have to try that. Uh, what is your most used kitchen implement? Oh, um, I think it's my rice cooker. I have an adoration for my rice cooker. What is a song that makes you smile? Oh, um, there's a song called Ab Hoga Kya um, by Prateek Kuhad. It's an, it's an Indian, like indie song songwriter. Um, and it's just cheerful and wonderful. I've gotten really into like independent Indian artists right now. Do you have playlists on the diaspora site? No, but I was thinking that we should probably have some, like, especially like from regional music from our farm partners. That would be a lot of fun. So stay tuned. Okay. Oldest thing in your fridge? Oh God. Um, capers probably. I never know what to do with them, but I always buy them. They might last forever. Yeah. I hope so. I think I've got some really old capers, really old cornichon that I should probably do something with. Uh, okay, last question. <laughs> Dream collaboration. I know you do a lot of thoughtful collaborations. This one's easy. I've been like scheming this since I was a kid, working with Patagonia. Oh, okay. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You can make that happen. I think so. Yeah, give me a year. <laughs> we'll give you a year. We'll check back in 12 months. So anyway, <laughs> okay. thank you again. Thank you for agreeing to do this um, right when you came back. And thank you for just all the beauty and intentionality you put out into the world. Um, can't thank you enough. I, you're a role model for me. It's, it's very mutual. And I, I said this before we started recording, but I've been listening since before I was, you know, when I was in college. So this is a big deal for me. So thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much to Sana Javeri Kadri of Diaspora Co. for joining us and for being an inspiration. Be sure to check out Diaspora's products at diasporaco.com. If you are a Diaspora super fan, mark your calendar because the Spring 21 Harvest pre-orders launch March 31st. Thank you to Sitka Salmon Shares for supporting this episode. You can check them out at sitkasalmonshares.com. 
Radio Cherry Bomb is produced by Cherry Bomb Media. This episode was engineered and edited by Jenna Sadu. Thanks for listening, everybody. You're the bomb. I'll have what she's having.